Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody. This is Dr. Simon with another edition of Stories We Live By. And um, I tried to put a show on last week um, about the, basically the same content as tonight. And uh, something happened where I couldn't hear the sound. Well, I didn't know the sound was on. Uh, something was wrong. Uh, I sort of figured out later what it was. And so I stopped the show about uh, 25 minutes, 20 minutes into it. Because my fear was uh, like a some kind of a maniac. I was speaking into dead air, uh, sitting in my room in a te- with a telephone to my ear and not speaking to anybody. Um, uh, a disquieting feeling. So I removed that and I rescheduled for today. And I have been fooling around with the title of this show. Um, and it's clear, if uh, I know as a writer, when you don't know what the title is, you really don't know what the content is specifically. You could have a mass of material and not quite know uh, to whom it's directed or exactly what uh, its focus is. The title sort of does that for you. Uh, I'm still not happy with the title, uh, Stories of Psychology Without Psychiatry, but I'm going to leave it as is uh, and try to explain why I chose that title after about 150 other titles, uh, uh, all of whom uh, dissatisfied me. Um, uh, so uh, basically, um, I, I've been looking over some of my shows. In fact, I listened to a show of mine. I've never done that before. I listened to a whole show, uh, my August 6th show this year, 2012, uh, or 2013 now. This past August, I did a show on the dehumanization of our society. Uh, and I'm really quite taken with it, uh, to blow my own horn. It was 28 minutes long. Actually, I was sort of finished, and I carried the airtime for another few minutes, maybe 25 minutes. And um, in it, I really talked about how human beings are dehumanized and, and, and how when you dehumanize others after you've been dehumanized, uh, it sets up a vicious cycle in which um, you don't see others and they don't see you as full human beings. And what I did was only very briefly describe what I thought defines a human being. And what I want to do tonight is start a series of shows and hope it not too, I'm trying not too philosophical and not too pedantic, um, but I can't help it. Uh, this is how I think and this is who I am. And I want to set up a, a series of shows that will, for those who listen, maybe help them refocus uh, on aspects of their own experience and who they are in terms of their self and their identity. Uh, two words that are always being confused and I believe really need to be kept separate in our minds uh, because I don't think they're the same thing. Self is not identity, although a self without identity uh, is going to hardly be a human being in, in, in a full functioning sense. And I don't think you can have an identity unless there's a self that's being defined or identified, which is what the identity is. Uh, and I pick psychiatry as my whipping boy because so much of psychiatry 
and psychology that's went along, gone along with it, the clinical psychology, the clinical social work, really does not take as its starting point uh, a full human being. The hunt for labels that define the human being uh, in terms of the diagnostic categories uh, end up creating an identity that damages the self that is defined with such an identity and damages the self whenever we use that, uh, no, those labels for ourselves in which they overcome other aspects of our identity. Uh, they truncate, they shorten, they cut off the full range of human experience. And to, to see the human being as a machine, uh, as a kind of a wet machine, a very complicated machine, a neurological machine that uh, needs to be drugged. Uh, the hard drive has to be pulled out and washed down and rerouted rather than to look at the human experience, the experience of being human and the experiences of any given human being that shape the way a self and its identity operate to create behaviors that are hard to understand, that are disturbed and disturbing, that we then end up judging. And I've done a number of shows on this. I don't think I have to do any more, uh, <clears throat> although it's always there in, in, the, in the backdrop of how I think and how I speak. Um, so what I want to do is really spend some time talking about what I think is, the, is, is a human being um, in all aspects of being human and begin to talk about self. Now, I'm going to do some definitions of self, and I'm going to spend some time uh, being a little bit uh, academic. Again, it, it, it may not be the most entertaining, but I think in the long run, uh, when I learned this material, when I began to internalize it and look at myself uh, as a being that has a self, which has become identified mostly by others before I learned to identify myself, uh, it's been enormously liberating and enormously helpful. And every uh, human being I've said in many of my shows, the last one I spent a good deal of time, uh, I believe has a potential to be creative, positively creative, to bring something to the world that is unique. And uh, when it involves uh, a lot of work, when it involves uh, trying to figure out how to be really good at whatever it is we're, we're creating, whether it's a poem or a story, whether it's a loaf of bread, uh, whether it's, um, I mentioned in that broadcast of August 6th, uh, how I admired the Olympic, the, the Olympic athletes, um, uh, to, to do something that is the best that a human being can do uh, in the only unique individual way that that individual can do it, so enriches that person's life and enriches the lives of all around us and, and just throws us far away from the meanness of politics and from all of these uh, authoritarian ideologies that simply dehumanize and cut off the potential, the, the actual potential to have a good life that has built into it a genuine feeling of creativity and a genuine creative outcome. So what is self? 
self is basically the experience, the experience of being alive. We are, and, and here again, you'll forgive me for a little philosophy. We are constantly told we have a mind that's contained in a body. And I'm not going to get into the religious uh, ideology that says that when we die, uh, the mind escapes the body. That there's a spirit, and the spirit is immortal, or the spirit gets recycled, depending upon the religion that we're talking about. Uh, I, I, my show, by the way, the best listened to show I've ever done is the story uh, of a life without um, God. Uh, that's still being downloaded at a furious rate, which makes me feel very uh, happy and, and a creative, if you will. Um, uh, we are a living body. We are a living creature. And we are a creature not with a mind, but a creature that minds. In other words, we don't have thoughts. We think. We don't have emotions, but we feel. And when we label these things as nouns rather than see them as actions or verbs, it creates this idea that there's something separate between the mind and the body. Now, this a separate understanding that's required because if the body dies, the psychological activity that we call mind, mental activity also ceases. The problem is you can't study the body and not understand and, and have you unself understand the mental activity. The mental activity grows out of the interaction between a, a body that thinks, a body that has emotion, a body that acts on the world, a body that acts with other people, a body that is acted upon. Uh, there are two words for myself. There's I and me. I is the actor. I experience myself speaking into a phone and, and talking to you. Me is what happens if somebody should call and speak to me. Uh, I feel the floor under my feet as I pace back and forth at this point. Hard for me to sit in a chair with my head in one place at this point because I have a lot of problems in my neck and I've discovered that uh, probably the main thing that's irritating me is to hold my head in a specific position while I'm on the computer. So I can see my screen if somebody should call in at 646-716-7756, which would be a lovely thing. Uh, So uh, there's an I and then there's a me. The me is what I experience as the world acts upon myself. And the I is what does the acting. Now, to understand the I and the me, we need a psychology. We need a social psychology. We need an individual psychology. Biology will explain someday how the brain produces or creates in all of its wonderful activity an I and a me. But there will still be needing a psychology that is is the science, so to speak, of that I and me. Now, that science has to be different than the science that studies physics and chemistry and even biology. It can butt up against it. It can't contradict it. But neither can the hard sciences, which we admire so much and we feel uh, has enriched our lives and made our lives far more dangerous in terms of uh, both the wonderful technologies that allow me to speak 
uh, to uh, untold numbers of people from a telephone receiver uh, through my computer and the terrible weapons of mass destruction uh, that are and, and have been and hopefully will not be used in the future. So that technology is something we admire, we're in awe of. We seem to be much less in awe of a symphony, uh, unless, of course, uh, a certain song or a symphony or a painting uh, has grabbed hold of you, and you wonder, why can't I do something like that? What kind of wonderful process produced that? But the psychology can't be reduced to the biology even though our activity requires on a living body, a living biological body, to act. So we are an embodied creature. We are a human-specific animal. We have evolved uh, from other animals. Our closest relative uh, is the chimpanzee. 98% of our genetic material is identical to the chimpanzee. But uh, what a fabulous 2% that has produced uh, an, a, a, a smart monkey uh, that can get on a telephone and produce a lecture and the smart monkeys that can listen to uh, and hopefully uh, benefit from that material. Um, so there's I and a me and, and, and we experience. The body of permits experience. We experience through our eyes. We experience through our nose, our ears, our skin, our entire integumentation. Um, and no computer in the world, no machine in the world can produce the feeling that I have as I walk barefoot on my carpeting. Just that feeling. Uh, somebody once wrote, would take a computer the size of the Empire State Building and all the electricity of New York State to run it and, and uh, all of the uh, water over Niagara Falls to keep it cool. That Our brain does this, but the brain activity that parallels the psychological activity can't explain the psychological activity. So when we're born, we begin to experience the world through our senses. Self is the organization of that experience. And as we grow, we become aware that we're experiencing so that we experience ourselves experiencing. We see ourselves seeing. We can hear that we're hearing. We feel ourselves walking we feel ourselves talking. And as we grow and develop, memory are added to memory after memory and memory to create the feeling that we are a unitary figure, that we are a self, and that the experience of that self over time creates something that is not physical but could be. Treat it as if it were physical. When people tell me, other scientists, there is no such thing as self, uh, I often play the same little game. I say to them, um, what are you doing for lunch today? And they'll say, I'm going to a restaurant. Uh, what are you going to order? I'm going to order a hamburger. And I say to them, who is going to the restaurant? Right? Who is going to the restaurant? 
You say, I am going to the restaurant. I am going to order food. I am going to eat the food. What is the I in that sentence? That I refers to the experience, the collective experiences of that person's life up to that moment as a living, biological, psychological being. No biology, nobody's walking to the restaurant. The brain dies, the body dies, that's the end of self. I don't believe that self lives beyond the body. I don't believe that. Uh, the world makes no sense to me to believe that, so I can't believe that. Um, but don't tell me I don't exist as a psychological being. I was talking just recently to a patient in the uh, nursing home that I work, a man who has died uh, over the last weekend, a uh, lovely, lovely gentleman, who as he's dying says to me, I don't understand this. I still feel I am the same person I was when I was 20 and I played baseball. Okay. He knows he's not physically the same. But his feeling of being alive, his feeling of being human, is the same it's been, or he believes it's the same as it's been over these all the years of his life. Now, we really can't record how a human being feels at 20 and compare to it, how, how that same human being feels at 80. But the internal experience of I am a living, breathing person, facing death is in his mind in his, his his experience his sense of self the same as when he was 20 when I went and played baseball now I don't think this is too difficult to understand it becomes difficult to understand because we're trained not to think this way we're trained not to say what it is I experience what is it that you experience? And here's something I think is interesting. Because we're all human, because we're all embodied living creatures, certain aspects of human experience are universal. Every human being experiences the world in certain similar ways. It seems to me that has to be. It has to be. But at the same time, look around at all the faces you see, and while they're all the same as faces, eyes, nose, mouth, unless something terrible has happened to those faces, they're all different. They're all unique. And so all of us share the commonality of being an experiencing human being with a self. But all of us at the same time, experience the world different, different than every other human being. Ernest Hemingway, the great writer, said, so much of life is tragic because we insist that everybody must be experiencing the world just as we do. I experience the world and you must experience it the same way. And so much of what I've learned as a psychologist to try to help people do with their children, as teachers with their students, and I was trying to teach myself the same lesson, 
is that if I have a class of 30 people in front of me, they're all the same in some ways, but in the final analysis, they're all experiencing something different and unique. Each of them has a brain, if it's healthy, that's the same as all other brains. And each of them, if they're healthy, has a brain that's uniquely different than all other human beings. Part of the misery that we create for ourselves and others when we dehumanize another person is to deny the individuality of experience. And I want to talk about that specifically when I get to talk about identity. And by the way, I have an hour scheduled tonight. I'm not sure I'll do the hour. Uh, I did the show on Tuesday. Uh, it's Tuesday night. I originally was going to do it on Wednesday. I may go to a meeting at my uh, where I live tomorrow night. Uh, so uh, uh, I, I canceled that show and moved it over to this night tonight. But if I get tired, and I may, and I don't really want to go beyond much more than a half an hour, and if nobody calls and engages a little conversation, what I think I'm going to do uh, is leave the second part of this particular show for tomorrow night. So I'll simply uh, hopefully get some time that I can do this uh, with Blog Talk Radio and just uh, finish it up tomorrow night. So each of us uh, has a self. A self that's the same as all other selves in the entire world. We are all more human than otherwise. We are all persons, more as persons than otherwise. No matter how we dehumanize ourselves and how we dehumanize others and ignore the fact that we are experiencing, that we think and we remember and we recall and we dream and we listen and and we see, no matter how we ignore that, uh, we ignore it at our peril. <laughs> we then become, what I talked about in that August 6th show, something of a monster. We deny what is essentially human. We deny it in ourselves and others. And it's at that point that life, as I understand it, loses its potential for joy and for love and for happiness and creativity and becomes something uh, uh, very different and very unhappy and very ugly. Um, it feels like something uh, to be a man, a male. It feels like something to be a female. And I think it feels very different to be a male than a female. And we have all kinds of labels and we have all kinds of identity words that we use that simply obscure and often dehumanize and create hierarchies that I'm always talking about, uh, about those differences. Uh, I can't imagine, really imagine, what it would be like to carry a child. Uh, interesting, Freud had a whole theory that uh, women resent men uh, because they lack the penis that the vagina is an inferior organ to the male organ. And uh, feminists and uh, social analysts afterwards said this is uh, poppycock. Uh, it's not the penis that a woman wants. It is the power uh, in male-dominated society that the penis represents. However, 
having a penis, I think, produces a tremendous difference in experience uh, than the vagina. And certainly, to be able to carry a child is something I've always been in awe of, particularly uh, when my wife became pregnant and gave birth to my first of my three children. And I have a theory that Freud was uh, right, but in the opposite direction. I think that many men uh, who would like to be more creative are in awe at the ultimate creativity, the biologically based creativity of having a child, and are resentful and feel cut off from that and feel uh, basically inferior. And hence, so much of the hostility and the control of of women uh, and the resent of women uh, in our society who are becoming more and more equal and powerful as men uh, is born of that feeling of lack, that inability uh, to give birth, to to gestate and give birth to a child. Um, Our experiences matter. What we experience matters. And I want to spend a little time, and maybe I'll end the show after this. Uh, it makes a tremendous difference, I think, to uh, come into the world and be loved. And um, I think most of us, not all of us, but most of us, if not been loved perfectly, have been loved enough to develop a self uh, that is self-accepting. Uh, that is not laden with fear and anxiety, uh, which is the product, I believe, of not only not being loved, but of coming into the world and being resented, of being threatened in some fundamental ways, either by parents or maybe by siblings uh, early in life. Um, I don't spend a lot of time producing the psychoanalytic can't that all of life's experiences are less important than the experiences of infancy and early childhood, but I certainly do believe that those experiences are are critical. Um, I remember I spent about 10 years uh, renting an office, my psychotherapy office, from a a much-loved pediatrician, Uh, a really good doctor, doctor in the good sense. And... uh, Hey, one day, uh, one of the nurses points out, she says, he's very upset about this woman who comes in, you know, to have the baby checked. She never looks in the baby's face. She never makes eye contact with the baby. She never smiles at the baby. Uh, and, And the doctor is really very upset about that. And I watched for a while, while the baby was crying, she comforted the baby with her hands, but never did what you almost automatically in your mind's eye can see a mother do, which is to show concern, to hold the baby, to to, uh, nestle the baby, to look into the baby's face, and at the same time she's showing concern, smile, make eye contact. Face-to-face contact is so important for human beings uh, to be smiled at, to be recognized. When we are loved, this is all automatic. What we experience when we are loved by anybody, and again, it doesn't have to be mother. Uh, I've worked with people over the years, and I've experienced other people who were loved by grandparents, 
who are loved by aunts or uncles, who are loved by older siblings. And we're able to get that feeling of affirmation, that feeling that you know you are important to that person, equal to or greater than they hold themselves. You matter. And you matter as a unique individual. It's you, it's somehow in your essence that is acceptable. And ultimately, creativity, the ability to speak your mind, the ability to, to put something down that only you can say, it begins with a feeling that you are affirmed as part of the family, as part of the family of man, of your family, part of your neighborhood, your tribe. But at the same time, you are a part, an integral part, a valued part, a part that has been demanded to behave according to the rules of the family, of the school, of the tribe, of the community, but still respected for the uniqueness of your own experience. So I think this is critical. Uh, I have never found a patient that I've worked with over the years or somebody I've got to know who was uh, diagnosable by those terrible, awful words that make up the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, who was raised or experienced enough time in a family setting, in a school setting, uh, in a home setting, where they were experienced that they were unique, that they were valued, that they were important. Uh, I never felt that they never felt safe enough. They never felt loved, affirmed enough. They never felt respected enough. Uh, their uniqueness, their sense of creativity, their individual way they expressed themselves was never valued enough. Instead, they grew up in terror. Sometimes they grew up in the home, uh, uh, in my experience, of an alcoholic, somebody who loved their alcohol and drugs more than they loved the child. Ultimately, the dehumanization of the person who drinks too much, takes drugs, is such that they love their drugs more than their own life. Um, I was listening with my wife on the radio, and Whitney Houston's song came on, one of her songs. And both of us just looked at each other because every time I hear a song of hers, I'm not particularly a great pop lover, pop music lover, but she was spectacular. Uh, she was uh, uh, unique. Unique, I say that word. Uh, I use the word artist for her uh, when she sang. There was something really quite wonderful about her songs. They put chills up and down my spine uh, and threw it away, threw it away. Because inside her experience, probably never voiced it, was some terrible loneliness, some pain, some terrible fear, some terrible insecurity that she couldn't overcome without deadening it uh, by the drugs that she used. Okay. Uh, I've never seen a drug addict who felt completely comfortable in the world. And I'm using the word addict again. Uh, it's not the right word, but somebody who takes drugs over and over to the exclusion of all other activities, who lacks the confidence to say, here I am in the world, 
And I'm going to, I mean, I once asked some students, why don't you take drugs? Not why do you, but why don't you? And the response was interesting. Well, I have basketball practice. Uh, I have homework to do. Um, I could never look my mother in the face or my father in the face uh, if I did these things. I'd have to lie all the time. I would cheat. I would steal. In other words, they were alive in the world. And the experience of being alive was not something uh, that they wanted to terminate, that they wanted to escape from. So instead of walking around filled with guilt and shame, much of which is not that they couldn't feel guilt, that they couldn't feel shame, and probably did at various times, but it didn't permeate their basic experience of being a human being in the world that they lived in. I'm getting a little thirsty. I don't know. Is anybody there? Anybody like to call 646-716-7756? Anybody want to join the conversation? Uh, I would love it so if you would do that. So, I've gone over a little half hour. Uh, I'm going to leave my discussion of identity and how it integrates with self for tomorrow night. If I can't get time tomorrow night, uh, I'll leave it for next week. Um, But that's what I'm going to do. So, uh, let me see if I open a chat room. Maybe somebody's there. Launch a small chat. You know, I really have to call the good folks who run this uh, this uh, network and uh, get some help from them on learning and understanding a little more about the uh, the accoutrements, the the technology that I'm using to make these shows. <clears throat> Dead as a doornail. I know I'm not speaking into dead air, um, but okay. So I'm going to say good night tonight. I'm going to press the little icon that says end episode, and I'm going to try to reschedule uh, part two for tomorrow night and talk about identity and talk about identities that uh, develop in uh, affection and love and democratic type of settings versus those identities uh, that develop um, in authoritarian and totalitarian settings in which obedience to authority uh, overrides any sense of individuality, that individuality by itself, self-expression, is called being selfish, it's called disobedience, uh, and and, uh, love ultimately, the, the ultimate punishment uh, a love and respect gets withheld from the experience of that child or those children uh, because they are not uh, uh, becoming models and tintypes of the adults that raise them. And this is true of whether it's uh, clergy, teachers, parents, other relatives, older brothers and sisters. So I'm going to say good night for tonight. And uh, I hope this show does as well as the last four or five of my shows. Uh, I get a real kick out of it, a real pleasure out of it. And uh, I'm going to end the show right now.